So we just had uh, an excellent debate, I think, between uh, Eamon Ryan of the Green Party and me on behalf of Solidarity and the Socialist Party about the question whether capitalism can solve the climate crisis. We had almost 100 people here in Rua Red um, looking to hear the different viewpoints and to engage in the debate. Um, we dealt with a whole range of topics from the need for a planned economy, need for free public transport, need to keep fossil fuels uh, in the ground, and a question about how can we achieve the change uh, that we need. Is it going to come from Parliament or are we going to need movements on the streets, strike action, etc. Um, so it was a really good uh, debate. Hope that you watch it and enjoy it. So, thank you, Go ahead. Thanks a lot. Um, First of all, thanks a million to Eamon for coming and also the other members of the Green Party who are here and to, to everybody who's here. And I think it's, I mean, it's a really positive indication that so many people come to this meeting. It shows where people are at and the discussion that people want to, to have. Um, I'm not sure if people know, there's a guy called Mark Fisher. Um, he's a famous socialist who died a number of years ago. And he wrote about a thing called capitalist realism. And he summed it up in the notion that it's easier for us to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. That notion that capitalism is so pervasive, so powerful, that it's not really possible for us to imagine what a society without capitalism would be like. And what I'm going to argue in the course of my introduction and in the sum up is that in order to avoid the end of the world as we know it, we have to imagine the end of capitalism. And we have to do more than imagine the end of capitalism we have to organize really consciously for the end of capitalism to make it happen. That's the choice that we face in quite a short uh, space of time. Um, I'm going to assume, really, this isn't a place to debate whether climate change and a climate crisis, a climate catastrophe, are real or not. Obviously, if people have questions about that, there's no problem. They can ask questions. It'll be facilitated in the discussion. But I'm going to start with the basic assumption that we start with agreement that we face a climate catastrophe. I also want to make the point, although I'm not going to focus on it, that the climate catastrophe that we face is part of a larger ecological crisis that isn't solely reducible to a climate crisis. Um, it's seen in terms of uh, ocean acidification. It's seen in terms of destruction of the ozone layer, which is ongoing. It's seen in terms of mass species extinction. It seems in terms of fresh water shortages, in terms of the chemical pollution, the disruption of the nitrogen and phosphorus cycles. Um, they are interrelated, but also have separate dynamics to each of them, but are part of a larger ecological uh, crisis. Um, they are, in my opinion, an expression of what Karl Marx, who was arguably the world's first ecologist, what he described as a metabolic rift, uh, a break between humanity and the nature within which we live, the nature which forms our uh, body uh, and which we're completely a, a part of. In terms of climate change, the science is absolutely clear. We get almost daily reminders from new research about just how bad the situation uh, is. Um, one of the most recent shocking examples was that the rate of thawing in the Arctic, the level of thawing that's taken place, is 70 years ahead of what they thought was going to be uh, the case. And that's significant in terms of what it says about what's happened so far, but it also has significance about the pace of climate catastrophe that is coming because of the negative feedback loops that will be created as a consequence of the loss of this ice. People will all know the IPCC, who are 
relatively speaking, a conservative uh, group in terms of their estimates, have said that we have 12 years. In reality, now it's about 11 and a half years to avoid hitting 1.5 degrees of um, increase in, in climate. Uh, and after that, another half a degree will be absolutely uh, devastating. You're talking about sea level rises that would impact 10 million uh, people. You're talking about 99% of the coral being wiped out, insects being wiped out, our world being completely transformed. Um, and we should know that that's 2%. What we currently have agreement for and commitments for is heading towards 3%. That's if all the states did what they're saying that they would do, we would head towards 3% change. But if states continue to do what they're currently doing, the current track that we're on is for somewhere between four and six degrees worth of climate change, which is combined with the other aspects of ecological crisis, um, threatens a mass extinction event. Uh, it threatens you know, the very existence of the world as, as we currently know it. There is no greater threat to humanity and it is extremely present. It's not something in the far distant future, it's, it's facing us uh, now. And so the three simple facts that I would draw from the science is one climate catastrophe poses an existential threat to humanity as a whole. What, while saying that, we should also note that, of course, those who are hit first, those who are hit hardest, are those without means, which is the vast majority of people. The rich will be hit last and least and will be able to survive in a, in a very difficult scenario. Um, secondly, that time is extremely short. This is an extremely urgent problem facing humanity. And thirdly, what is being done so far and what is planned to be done is, is just completely inadequate. It doesn't come anywhere close to addressing the scale of the crisis uh, that we face. And I think we have to draw some conclusions from those three facts, in particular the third fact and the absence of a real response to the scale of the crisis that we face. Um, so a, a slogan that many people have raised is the idea that we have to do what the science demands, and we agree with that. And the science demands that we answer the question why, despite the massive amount of evidence that shows we're heading for this catastrophe, we're like tobogganing with our eyes wide open to ecological disaster, why do we keep doing it? Why hasn't a change taken place in terms of the policies that are pursued by governments uh, around uh, the world? And in my view, and that's what part of this debate is about, in my view, the obstacle to doing what is necessary, the obstacle to doing what the science demands is capitalism. What I mean by capitalism is a system of organizing our economy, of organizing production based on private ownership of vast sources of wealth, based on private ownership of production, that those people who decide what is produced, how it is produced, how it is distributed, are private operators. And as a consequence of that private ownership, the whole system operates on the basis of the pursuit of profit. Um, in my opinion, and this is what I, I try to set out to convince you of, that we, we will not avert climate catastrophe until we break with the capitalist system. Um, because the demand for profit and a profit-based system is incapable, uh, certainly in the short term in which, which we have available to us to avert climate catastrophe, it's simply incapable of doing it. That's true because, one, at, at a basic level of how each capitalist looks, and it's a system based on no cooperation, completely, are, you know, um, uncooperative, competition, brutal, etc. Each capitalist is driven, is even legally driven, towards ma maximizing profit. And when taking into account what is maximizing profit, they take no account whatsoever of the impact that their actions have in terms of the environment. So it's like a structural thing inside capitalism to exclude the impact on nature. And more concretely, 
some of the most powerful, most influential sectors of capitalism are completely tied to those industries which are destroying our environment. Fossil fuel capitalism is really at the core of our current capitalist system, big oil. Related industry, big auto, as they say in the US, big car companies, also extremely powerful. And particularly in terms of Ireland, but also in many countries around the world, big agribusiness. These are extremely powerful corporations. Um, they make up a large chunk of the 100 corporations that are responsible for the 71% of global emissions since 1988. Um, they make the vast majority of choices about how we live our lives, about how we consume, before we make any choices as workers or consumers. Before you go and buy your product in a shop, before you make your as ethically as possible choices, most of the choices have been made for you in terms of how it's produced, how it's distributed, how it's packaged. It's made by those companies uh, already. Um, so those companies are responsible. Those companies are like legally, legally driven to maximize profit. Uh, and those companies have massive political influence. And governments which represent the interests of those corporations have already proven completely unwilling to deal with the climate crisis. And the reason they're unwilling to do it is because dealing with the climate crisis means reducing their profits. In fact, in many cases, it means reducing their profits to zero. It means eliminating their profits. It means eliminating, say, big oil as an industry uh, uh, at all. Um, they are incapable of transitioning to the zero carbon economy in a just, rapid way that we need because they're incapable of taking on the interests of these profiteers. Um, that's seen, obviously, in a really you know, brutal, crude way with Donald Trump and you know, completely being connected to big oil in the US and saying, basically, being a climate change denier. But it's also seen in, in Ireland, where the government acknowledges climate change but then still is not doing like anything really to, to deal with it. Um, and so if, if you look, for example, at the most recent climate action plan, which was supposedly the Irish government now finally taking climate change seriously, if you look at the two, say agriculture and enterprise together make up 50% of the emissions that, that are created in, in the Irish economy. Um, those two sectors have increased by 40% since 2011. And in the climate action plan, um, basically, there's almost no reductions in emissions planned for those sectors. There's 5% planned for enterprise and for agriculture, they envisage an increase in the herd size. The number of cattle, there's 10 million cattle in Ireland at the moment, they envisage that increasing and so basically also are not seeing that there's going to be a, a reduction. And so what, what I would argue is that the only model of society capable and, and of, of economy capable of turning around in the speed within which we have to do it, you know, within a very, very short space of time and transforming how we produce um, the model in which we do it, how we distribute and so on, is not a society based on private production for profit. The only way to suppress fossil fuel extraction, fossil fuel usage, and to transition to a zero carbon economy in a just and fair way is on the basis of public ownership of the key sections of the economy and a planned, democratically planned uh, economy. It's the only way you're going to be able to do it in a very rapid uh, pace, short uh, base of time. Um, it's the only way to rationalise, reprioritise and restructure production to create a permanently sustainable uh, economy. Um, having said that, like, I, I think breaking with capitalism is an essential condition to avoid climate catastrophe. Um, it isn't a sufficient condition 
by itself. And I wouldn't make that argument that all by itself, breaking with capitalism, means that automatically you're going to avoid climate catastrophe. Obviously, the Stalinist states um, had public ownership, were brutal dictatorships run from above, and they were capable of environmental destruction, just like uh, the capitalist states, because there was no democratic involvement of ordinary people, which is essential to say, well, no, we're concerned about the environment. We need democratic planning, which includes planning uh, for our, our planet. Um, but I think it is a necessary condition that capitalism as a system is completely incapable of delivering the change that we need in the very short time frame that we possibly have available for us. Um, the conclusion we draw from that is not, you know, you could have the impression that then we're just for like having a campaign to end capitalism and have socialism. We're going to go out and do like stalls and get petitions for socialism now against capitalism. That's not the conclusion that I am um, arguing for. Um, I think we have to build, and as socialists, we have to be part of the largest possible environmental movement, the largest possible movement to avert climate catastrophe for in support of, you know, the government stopping the blocking of the Keep It In The Ground Bill, the Climate Emergency Bill, in favour of free uh, public transport, in favour of a mass campaign of retrofitting, so in favour of all the demands that we need right now, um, and not creating as a precondition to working alongside people there that they agree with us that capitalism is the problem and that socialism is the solution. So we need a broad movement of everybody who can agree on the things that are necessary now. But within that movement, we think we have to argue for anti-capitalist and eco-socialist uh, policies, um, and that that should inform the strategies that we pursue in that movement. Um, and so from that point of view, and obviously Eamon and the other Green Party members will, will respond, I think it's a shame that the Green Party at their conference last weekend didn't take the opportunity to vote to say that capitalism is the problem. Obviously, that the, as far as I know, the motion was amended to say that neoliberalism is the problem, but capitalism was not identified as being the problem. And I think the other vote, which was to vote down an opposition to coalition with Fianna Fáil and uh, Fianna Gael, um, was also a mistake. And I think it's a mistake that is related to the first mistake in terms of not calling out capitalism as being uh, the problem. Because the view that capitalism is the problem and we have to fight for an alternative to capitalism should inform our strategic choices. And so in my opinion, it's, it's very clear from the nature of the capitalist society that we have that a future coalition that involves the Green Party with any of the capitalist parties in Ireland will do just like the last coalition government that involved the Green Party did. It will attack ordinary working class uh, people. In that case, it obviously did the whole austerity program, drove us into it, the bank bailout, etc. But it also will not deliver on the environment. I mean, the last Green Party-involved government uh, stood over the construction of the onshore pipeline uh, and refinery for Shell at Rossport against massive community opposition and police brutality designed uh, to enforce that. So such a government would, would fail to deliver for like, ordinary people in general on all of the issues and in terms of the, the environment. Um, and so in, instead, what we think we should do is we should build the biggest possible movement today uh, within that, we should put forward and fight for demands and policies and a program which is necessary to stop climate change. And the reality is that we should put those forward despite the fact that they are going to be completely unacceptable to capitalism. Capitalism, they are going to challenge the very logic of the capitalist system in this country and internationally. And internationally is a point, you, you need global cooperation to be able to deal with any of these problems. We have to popularise, I think, the idea of a socialist Green New Deal. 
uh, a set of policies which interrelate the struggle for social justice with environmental justice and on that basis are able to mobilise the greatest possible number of people for a transformed uh, society. Um, at a headline figure in Ireland, we think we have to fight for uh, a zero carbon economy by 2030 um, and for that to be done in a rapid and just way, which means that workers, small farmers, ordinary people do not lose out uh, at all and that the burden for paying for that is placed on big business and um, who are the big uh, polluters in any case. Um, just to, to kind of give some examples of the kind of things we're talking about as a, as a programme and why it inevitably comes up against the limits of, of capitalism, just to deal quickly with the, the three main, the three biggest polluting areas in the Irish economy, the polluting sectors, is agriculture, transport and energy. Um, and Ireland's unusual in the sense of, of the role of agriculture in the economy and it being the biggest uh, sector. Um, our, our model of agriculture has to be completely transformed. That's just the, the starting point is that our model of agriculture is completely unsustainable. We need a different model of agriculture, which has, is, is far less carbon intensive and is sustainable. An important part of that actually would be afforestation on what are currently uh, farms. And how are you going to do that? Like Kerrygold, Glombia, Greencore, are they just going to say, oh, that's fine, the, the big farmers you know, the big ranchers, are they going to say that's, that's grand, you can change the model of agriculture? They're not. It, you will have to take those companies and those big farmers and big ranchers into democratic public ownership uh, and use them as a tool to adjust and rapidly alter the model of agriculture. And that doesn't mean, you know, nationalizing every small farm in the country, but instead of that, it means using, I mean, there's massive state subsidy to farming. Um, it comes from, you know, it's common agricultural policy. The, that money floods to the big farmers, those at the, at the very top. I mean, the top 10 farmers in Ireland, in terms of size, got over 200,000 euros on average each from EU subsidies through CAP. That should be completely reversed, and instead the subsidies should be used to ensure that nobody loses out and everybody is incentivised to move to a very different model of agriculture. In terms of transport, like, you know, the, the, the most ambitious that the Climate Action Plan could be is the idea of, okay, people currently take petrol-driven cars on an individual basis. You know what? We'll put it at this ambitious target of having a million electric cars, which is not going to reach. I mean, the, their targets have changed completely on that, but it's really, really not the answer. Electric cars, which rely on you know, environmentally destructive extraction of, raw, of rare uh, earth, rare metals, uh, involve huge exploitation of labour, including child labour, massive human rights abuses. That is not the answer. And it's sticking within the framework of individual travel, of individuals on different trips. The answer is public transport, and what you need is massive investment to expand public transport and uh, for public transport to be made free, as is the case now in over 100 cities uh, around the world. Again, that's in the opposite direction that the capitalists want to go, that the government wants to go. They're driving towards privatisation. We have to argue against that and bring transport workers into the centre of that in struggling for decent wages, decent conditions as part of uh, a public service. In relation to energy, obviously we have to leave the fossil fuels in the ground, we have to leave the peat in the ground immediately without any uh, delay um, and without any loss for the workers involved, full compensation. Um, we have to take the oil and gas out of the hands of the oil and gas companies who were given it for free in any case, take it out of their hands with no compensation and leave it uh, in, uh, in the ground. We have to massively reduce energy usage as well as 
using renewable energy, we have to massively reduce the amount of energy that we use. That's part in, in people's homes. That means a massive program of uh, retrofitting. The idea that like you're going to burden you know, ordinary people with massive debt over 20, 30 years to pay for the retrofitting that's necessary as opposed to public program, which create a huge number of jobs is utterly mad. But also corporations. By 2025, 2027, a third of energy use in this country is going to be for fueling uh, data, data centers. Um, that's what around this area, they're expanding them massively. It's completely uh, mad. Um, 200 companies are responsible for 20% of energy uses. So we need a plan to massively reduce energy uh, usage, but then we also need to replace the fossil fuels with 100% renewable uh, energy. It's estimated that the cost of, to, to have enough wind and wave energy to replace the fossil fuels that we currently use costs about 21 billion euros. That's a lot of money, obviously, to everybody here, but let's think about how much money Apple owes Ireland. Uh, 13 billion plus interest, which gets you about 19 billion. Think about all the other um, wealth that's held by the very richest in our society, and with socialist policies, those resources can be mobilised to do what is necessary to get us there for 2030. And um, just to, to finish, because I'm out of time, and um, there's many, many other things that you could you could say and argue for that are part of a of a program to deal with the climate crisis. And um, but we think understanding that tackling the climate crisis means tackling and ending and challenging the rule of capitalism is important. Obviously. You have the best Green New Deal, socialist Green New Deal in the world, you have the best policies in the world, but if, if, if they're not associated with movements of people, they're not going to be implemented. So those ideas have to be connected to a mass movement. It's really great to see the emergence of Extinction Rebellion, and we encourage people to get involved and you know, become part of that. 20th September has been named as a climate strike. We think it's vital that we argue in our communities, in our workplaces, in our trade unions, that they have to follow the lead of the school students and we have to have workers' action in terms of, uh, as part of a, a global day of climate uh, strike. Uh, and we think we have to, as part of an environmental movement, build the socialist, build the anti-capitalist wing of that movement, to argue for that movement, to take up eco-socialist policies and to encourage people to get involved in solidarity and the Socialist Party. Thanks a lot. Paul took 21 minutes and 21 seconds, so you're laughing to the same time. Perfect. Thanks so much indeed. I'm very glad to be here, and I think it's a very useful debate. Um, Paul and myself, our parties, we agree on a lot of things. And I think where there's points of difference, it's healthy to investigate those, better understand each other and tease things out. Where I come from, I come from my uncle was a Dominican in the friary here, he was a, lived out a life of liberation theology in South America that would put the most radical socialist to shame. He was my hero. And I was also, I'm a businessman. Set up a business out of the dole, came, took myself off the dole, and I wasn't in business for, I mean, I was business to get myself paid away, but, but I was in business because it was an expression of my values as well. And I'm glad that that business is still going 30 years later, employing a dozen people. Um, it wasn't just about profit, certainly wasn't for me, and I think for a lot of other people too. Um, I agree first, what do we agree on? Some things we agree on. Firstly, the scale, and, and I'm taking the same assumption Paul said, if anyone thinks that the climate change science is not real, well, that's a different debate. And, and I think that debate's been had. I think we're beyond that debate. Um, 
What maybe I think isn't understood yet is that the scale of the change that science requires us to now make is beyond compare. It's changing everything in an incredibly short time. It's changing our entire agricultural system, forestry system, our, our protection of nature. It's changing our entire transport system, our entire energy system, our entire industrial system, all in three decades, two or three. You could argue about, some people would argue, the scientists say that the globe has to do this, we have to get to net zero by 2050. There is an obligation on wealthier countries which have been responsible for the emissions in our country, while it's small, it equates to 400 million of the poorest people on earth. And on a social justice basis, we, so we're not insignificant. Um, so while the, the scientists say the whole world should be net zero by 2050, we should do, do that quicker. How quickly is something we have to find out. And it's both a sprint and a marathon because we have to, but the scientists say that seminal report last October, we've known about this for 30, 40 more years and we haven't responded with the commensurate response that the risk would require. So we really have to do it now, in the next decade, make the big leap. And we have to, in my mind, in the political world, we'll, it's not just one government's going to do this. We'll probably need about seven, eight, nine, ten governments in a row that are set on the same course so that we don't do stop-start. So it's a sprint and a marathon and changes everything. So I think one of the things we agree on is it's systems change. It's not keeping with the current system. Whatever you call it, or whatever your view of it. Now our view again, would we would share a common understanding and critique of the current capitalist system of being not just for environmental reasons, but for social justice reasons, also deeply inequitous and dangerous in its propensity to boom and bust and ignore natural resources and ignore social, the, the need for a more equal society. Um, I agree with you, Paula, but this is where the teasing out needs, that the response to this needs to be able to use a democratic planned economy. It has to be democratic. In my perspective, we will not achieve this. We will certainly not achieve the transformation we need by leaving it to the market. That was the central ideology across most of the political spectrum, not ours, or not yours, for the last 30, 40 years. The Washington Consensus is shot. I believe in our Irish democratic constitutional systems. And we may differ on that, but I believe that the way to do the democratic control is through the Dáil, is through Dáil Éireann and our Chana Éireann and our local councils. And I forgot to say at the start to recognise Liam Sinclair, Peter Kavanagh, Francis Noel Duffy, our Green Councillors. If I've forgotten any other Socialist, Socialist Party candidates or anyone else, but I believe our institutional, constitutional, democratic, I believe in them. And I believe we should use them to affect this new planned economy, because it is going to have to be planned. It will, in my mind, involve this. I'm visiting it the way you are, Paul Forward. What does it involve? I think it involves a huge amount of additional state ownership and state control. But I believe it will still involve capital. And I want to set out some examples of where I think that will be deployed and how it might be deployed or how it might be controlled in a planned economy. Um, 
I believe, though, that there's other, I suppose, we in the Green Party would come from, as I, understand, as I sense, and also certain other senses that we bring to it. Firstly, we have had from the very start, and I would grown up in the late 70s, I read this, which inspired me from the start, that there are limits to growth, that there are natural resource wealth, or sorry, limits in, in natural resources that we have to take into account. And I always enjoyed arguing with Joe Higgins, not arguing, but this argument we, well, was a real argument between us over the years in terms of whether it's just about dividing up the wealth or is there actually a limit to that wealth because of natural resources. And it's not just the limits in terms of the amount of resources. I actually think the very measurement of what success or wealth or progress is fundamentally has to change in the system change we seek. I believe it is a change away from this growth model, whatever, whether it's socialist or capitalist, the actual <clears throat> concentration on material wealth, ignoring the loss of natural capital in that process, but also ignoring other things, ignoring the value of caring work, ignoring the very value actually of those natural resources as well, is some of the dramatic system change that needs to pay, take place in the whole school of economics. We buy into the credo of Kate Ross and the, the uh, donut economics. And people have seen that book, which recognizes that there's a space, safe space that we can develop an economy in, which has an ecological limit on it and a social limit. And we have to live within that. It's the limits to growth economy that we believe that we need to develop. In terms of the changes, Transport, you're right, is probably, in my mind, the most difficult. Um, because the key problem I sense at the moment is so we, we, we've designed it around the car. I grew up watching Tala grow without any of the public services being provided in it. So we've ended up in a city and in a country where 75% of all trips are made by private car. And it's really difficult to now change that system because our political, democratically elected representative system tends to represent that 75%. The poor people tend not to have a car, maybe don't vote as much. But those in the cars are still thinking, one more road and we'll, I'll finally be free, it'll all work. We have yet to come around. One of the biggest obstacles I found in the dull debates we've had of this in recent years is to getting the political courage. It's not about capital or it's not about... <laughs> It's about getting the political capital from our people to actually take the space back and give it to public transport. And that's not easy because it's actually going to be difficult. It's going to be taking space back from the cars, what we need to do. And I believe that will have huge social as well as environmental benefits. I believe actually an individualized, car-based, atomized system where we're all locked in our metal boxes without that connection to each other, will be very different to a system where as pedestrians or as cyclists, we meet each other and see each other. And as people on a bus, we're a sense of part of something which is more than, which is more of a society rather than the individualized model that I believe that the current transport system devises. So yes, in that area, I think the state has a massive role. I think public transport is naturally publicly owned and should be. I believe the action, but the key issue is in the allocation of space and the allocation of resources away from the current system of two to one roads investment to two to one public transport, having already spent 10% of our budget on cycling and 10% of walking. But that's been the biggest challenge in my political life, arguing that for the last 30 years, 
not because of the capitalists, or maybe yet yeah, the Rhodes lobby have a, are making money out of it, Syac and Sisk and so on, and yes, the car companies, but, I, but the real problem is that the Irish people have said, you know, voted, say, yeah, we want that car-based system. And that's the big change that has to take place. It's in our heads as to what will work and what we want. Is that, because cars bring freedom, because you go from being a donkey to a cheetah when you put a foot on a metal pedal and you take off. It's hard to win back that, to say, no, actually, going up, using the bus system is going to be better having people cycling and walking, which is maybe seen as an old poor man's solution. It's not. It's a socially rich solution is what we should be going for. In land use, um, it's probably the second biggest and second most difficult. Um, we need a land use plan, and again, this is where it's state planned, where we look at the whole island. We've been arguing for this in the Climate Action Committee. And we're going to have to designate, we're going to have to dramatically increase our forestry. Now, we won't be able to do that if we just railroad in and say we're going to cover Leitrim in, in Sitka spruce conifers. We're going to have to work from the bottom up to get agreement for what type of forestry. And it's going to have to be forestry that's rich in biodiversity and which protects our soil and water. It's a completely different model of forestry. We have to change over everything we've done in the last 70 or 80 years towards a new type of forestry model. We have to take large areas of land, and this is really difficult, but converting it for wildlife, protecting wildlife because the natural, the loss of biodiversity is an equal threat to climate change in terms of undermining the very fabric of the natural systems upon which we depend upon. We have to change our farming. Now, yes, we can change that big industrial farming model promoted by, by, by Fine Gael, but in truth, the 120,000 fa Irish family farms are going to be in the front line of the change, and they're not, for the most part, big. And, and the actual the difficulty we have here is, in my, my mind, again, in the perception. They see this ecological threat as being presented, that they're being blamed as the bad guys, that they're the problem, that, that urban Ireland is out to get them, that no one understands, and it's true, it's hard, isolated, difficult, poorly paid work. Well, if we're going to turn that round, I don't think we can, I think farmers are still going to be business people. And, and I think they'll be better farmers when, they're, when they have, it's not just all completely controlled. We're not going to win and tell every farm, this is what, exactly what you have to do with your land. We have to give the signals. We have to pay properly through the new common agriculture policy for the protection of water, the improvement of water, the protection of biodiversity, the storage of carbon. But, um, What's his name? Hermann Scheer, the great German SPD politician who was very responsible in the early days for the start of the energy in transition there. He wrote a book, Solar Century, 20, 30 years ago, and his concluding marks was the farmers are going to be the centre point of this revolution and change because of their own expert knowledge in terms of that piece of land is going to be really good for growing bioplastics, that piece of land is going to be wetland wildlife, that piece of land for, for arable crops. That ingenuity... And that skill is something that we're going to have to rely on farmers, family farms, to deliver. In energy, probably the area where we're going to need capital most. In those other two, it's a matter of reallocating space, firstly, in transport, and the payment incentive schemes. Yes, completely changing the market, dominated by Larry Goodman and others. In energy, we will still need capital. 
to take a couple of projects as example, and this is all big and has to be done in an incredibly short time, we have to retrofit about one and a half million Irish homes. I can't remember the exact figures, but 300,000 are, are, are social housing owned by public owned ownership houses, but it's still 1.2 million private houses. Now, I don't know if we go and say to every private household, well, firstly, I don't think we should go and say, here's a big wad of cash to do up your private house and you get the private gain, wouldn't be correct. But I don't think we're going to nationalise every house. And it's about a 50 billion euro project that has to be done in two or three decades and we don't have the workers to do it today. So we're going to have to get some sort of mechanism, some sort of mortgage addition or some sort of really low cost long term loan, like really low cost, so that the savings on the energy efficiency you make cover the cost of that loan. I don't think the state can do it by grant because that would be unfair and it would chew up the entire budget, which we do need to do to go first into the social housing that needs to be upgraded and to go into our public buildings, our schools, hospitals, garden stations, post offices, all those buildings need to be, this is what I mean when I say this scale of this is beyond compare because we're changing every single building, every single home and we're changing it for the better. It's not a negative, it's not a hardship, it's not a point the finger people, it's making it easy for people to do the right thing, which is the democratically planned part of it. On, on, on Elling, we're going to have to electrify everything because it's clear renewables are going to win. Renewables are now the most cost competitive, lowest cost. And the great attraction of renewables is the things we agree on a lot with, with Paul and his colleagues is the, the whole resource wars, the whole international dimension of what's happening around oil. The great thing about renewables is no one will ever hold a solar panel to ransom. You know, you can't. Same way you can, you can hold a country to ransom by blowing up a gas pipeline. And there's renewables in every country, in every different space, in every different way. We don't have much solar. We should have. We can get a good chunk of power from solar. But compared to Morocco, they'll be strong on solar. We'll be strong on wind. And a lot of it, and a lot of this new economy is about community ownership. It is more cooperative. It is more local. It has to be on every roof. If we got 700,000 Irish houses, that would immediately give us 5% of the electricity we need. We can do that. And every 5% chunk adds together to get to the whole 100% reduction. But we're also going to need offshore wind in the Irish Sea at scale to be able to run everything. To be able, so every house we retrofit, we put in a heat pump so you're powering, the, warming the house and the water in the house with electricity. And the car will be electric. There should be a fraction of the number of cars because we push public transport and because we do car sharing rather than car ownership, but we'll still need a few hundred thousand cars and they will be run on electricity. That scale of renewable power, as well as the local, as well as the micro, we will also need offshore wind. And in that, we don't have the boats, the ships to do it. We don't have the, even the skills, the engineering, we have to learn them. We will not do that in the time just ourselves as a state, us alone. We're going to have to deploy some capital to deliver some of those types of projects. Um, and on oil, one thing I think we have changed in our perspective, one of the things, mistakes we've made maybe in the green environment movement, I think, in the last, in the last 20, 30 years, is we made a mistake by putting it all in the individual. Like, are you doing the right thing? Have you changed your purchasing, what you're buying? Are you... Are you using the right cup? Are you? And we're going with these big problems. The, the world is melting. The ice cap's melting. Is that the right light bulb? And we've made people feel guilty and people feel shamed. 
what Bill McKibben and 350.org have changed the whole thinking around this for the better is that actually you tackle the problem at source. You actually stop the oil and gas at the wellhead, at the mine, at the, at, at the oil terminal, rather than at the consumer end. And yes, that more than anything else requires us taking on corporations, but in truth, it isn't just corporations. 70% of the oil reserves are held by the states, by state oil companies. It's, it's actually the biggest political obstacle globally to the Paris Climate Agreement is the state operators saying, we want, we, we, we're going to fight you against this. Now, we will win it, I think, because it's a better system we're going to. It's more peaceful. It's actually more economic because it has to be efficiency and everything. It's a whole new circular economy that designs from the start for less material use is the key measure of, of success. Now, can we do that, the question is, can we do that with the existing democratic control systems, which is the key issue here. Which democratic, pl democratic plan is the best plan to, to deliver? And you could despair because we're not making the changes we need to make and our figures are through the roof in terms of emissions. But I still stand by the democratic constitutional systems we have. And I've seen in the last top two years, even in this doll, we banned fracking in that Bill McKibben 350.org way. We said to the state investment company, it was Thomas Pringle's bill in this case, you shall not uh, invest in oil or fossil fuel companies, which is what we need to do. And Breed Smith, in fairness to her, her bill is going to be enacted. Her bill will get through. If it doesn't get through on this Fine Gael government, it will get through in the next one. And we will not stop there. I'm 100% confident of that. Because if we can't do that basic step, how can we win over the public confidence to do all the rest? But I do believe in this country there has been a change in psychology in the last year or two. I believe that the response to the climate strikers, the response to David Attenborough, the response to the evidence change in climate that we see around us, has changed public consciousness where they're actually the Irish people are now starting to say, well, actually, I do want to do this, and we can do this. And I believe our job is to actually then make the measures go ahead and do it. I think it's hugely important we do that in the European Parliament because, as you know, Paul, that's one of the few political institutions that can actually regulate global capitalism, which is what we need to do, which can actually change the rules and fundamentally alter the whole direction of the country because we're not an island on this. Yes, we need to go to free trade, but I do not believe we can make this if we go with De Valera's vision of kind of back to just uh, self-reliance because our Irish people won't, won't buy that in the end. So we have to do it with international cooperation, with a scale of ambition around the system change that needs to take place. And more than anything else, it's in our heads, it's in our hearts, it's in the new understanding that we are connected to nature and connected to each other in a way that requires an evolutionary leap, a change of our ways that's going to be better for us every way. Thank you. God Almighty, I won't take the full 10 minutes. Um, Saif has said a lot of what I would actually... Uh, I wish she'd been up here sitting, speaking for, 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 uh, for a longer period of time because I think it's true. We share critique, 
of the current system. We share roots in being anti-war and a whole range of other different roots. And I think she's right about um, this is a moment when we should collaborate. Can I answer the gentleman simplify? Because yeah, I could see how maybe I confuse people saying, oh, it's not about all just the individual. Maybe if I put it that way, it's not all about the individual in their head being a consumerist, because that hasn't worked. That hasn't worked. Capitalism has failed us in that. That century of the self, the psychology, advertising, consume, consume model has to change. And the environmental movement responded by saying, it's what are you doing? And think of it all in this consumer way that I have to change my ways. That's not going to work. And I suppose what I believe in, it is actually going to have to be a democratic solution because I believe the scale and speed of the change requires the broadest consensus. And that is one of the roots of our party, trying to seek consensus. And I'm trying to articulate, maybe not the best way I could or should, that actually to get the democratic consensus and sense of support, that's in our heads. That's what we feel and value and want to see achieved. And I do believe that that has to be or will be done, not just by through parliamentary measures, but I think that's part of the process. And I do talk to all parties in the Dáil because I fundamentally believe in the democratic elected representative nature of our politics. And if even across the road from me in the, the corridor where I am, Danny Healy Ray across the road, I don't agree with Danny in just about anything, but he's elected by 20,000 Kerry people. And I don't want to disrespect them by just completely, Danny, I'm never going to talk to you. And particularly when I want to get the people who he's voting for him to actually turn around and start seeing it my way. If I'm just holier than thou to him and I refuse to go near him, I don't think Danny will be in any future coalition, but, but the principle still stands. I believe in a democratic approach. That means you do, you do talk to people. But to answer the, first, the last point I'd make, to answer that lady, first lady, in terms of, so what, what can I do? And if it's not going to be all this consumerist, oh, you have to do your house up, or you have to be, stop driving the car, I drive a car. You know, I mean, we're not, none of us are bloody saints. The job is to make it easier for us all to do the right thing collectively, and in do the right thing, create a much more successful society. And I think a lot of the democratic part of this will be actually way below the parliamentary level. Because it has to be bottom up. I think Bus Connects is, is we, it's critical we actually deliver Bus Connects, in my mind. Now, I don't want it to be achieved with four-lane highways, which takes out every front garden, every tree, and which just maintains all the car volumes as is. I believe it's up to the councillors in terms of what could you do, I would talk to your councillor, whoever they may be, to say, I want you to engage in this consultation process, and we're in the middle of that process, to say, this is the type of solution I want, where we create an urban space that's really attractive, where we create a really first-class service, and where we throttle back the demand for the cars. And that's not going to be easy, because as soon as we do that, everyone who's in the car is going to say, oh, you're, how am I going to get to work? It's not easy, but I think it can only be best, or it is best done through our local councils, who are local representative, elected representative. That's their job, and they should lead on it. And secondly, when it comes to, there's a kind of, I keep coming back to the thing, is every place matters, every person involved. 
and, and it's every piece of nature is important, not just some rainforest or some distant place. It's here that's important. It's nature in Tala that's important. And I see really good stuff happening. This is why you get a certain amount of optimism. I see the Tala Community Council and the work they do. I see the changes that have taken place even along the Dodder and, and the potential that could up in the, in the mountains. We've just made a decision in creature. We're not going to chop down all the trees up in the Dublin Mountains. Well, okay, well, let's celebrate that and start creating a park up in the Dublin Mountains that's truly spectacular. That's not beyond the reach of us to achieve. And, and it's at every piece of green grass that we can find. It's every allotment we could put in instead of vacant lots. It's doable at that local level, and that's in our heads that it's doable. And last but not least, in terms of what, you, what, what we do, it's really hard to retrofit your own home. It's really hard to know what's technically the right thing. It's really expensive. It depends how much the expense is. It makes money because if you have a big fuel bill, you can save a lot of money by putting the insulation in. But no individual has the wisdom to be able to do that, and even to get the contractors to do it. So we're starting to see community energy cooperatives growing up. There's one, I've been working on in Terranure that I know better, Terranure 2030. And they're coming together and bringing the houses together so that instead of just doing one house, maybe you're saying to do the builder, well, listen, there's 20 houses on our road that are all the same, which they are. They all have the same type of problems. Those grates, those fireplaces that were put in by grants, as you say, back in the 70s and 80s. Well, how could we retrofit them where we're not just doing one, we're doing 20. And in doing 20, we get a much better price. And in doing 20, it, it, it's, we're doing a collective. I mean, you could go even further, turn your day to a nice idea. If everyone has a garden along a road, well, could we plant maybe plants along the garden so that we would attract back bees collectively? And we'd have a lovely smell of something along our street because we'd all think, let's make this street really good for this type of gardening. Even a small patch. It's that sort of actions, I think, where we need to do. It's not acting as consumers to do the right thing. It's acting collectively at the local level and at the, I mean, my mind, it's also political at both national and European level. But, and that's, it goes back to, it is democratic. And, and the democratic is us. We live in a constitutional republic. I believe in the first, premise of that republic that we are all equal and we all have a role. Now it's not a role where you're putting the finger of guilt on people, it's a role where let's work together to make this work. And that's what will make this leap happen. If we go down a divisive route to say that whole crowd there are the problem and they're the real difficulty, be it the farmers or be it the motorists or be it I mean yeah industry has to change and industry has to be taken on the best of interest is one of the biggest obstacles. But, but the people have to be with us. It has to be. If it's a movement, it has to be a mass movement, as in, who are we ruling out? And why would we rule people out? I believe the Irish people are basically decent people. They're looking to, they're, they're concerned about their children's future. They want to do their bit. Now is the time for us to that, sell that inspiring message. Peter, you're right. That sense of you're voting for the collective good here, not just for the personal greed. I think we're at an 11, we have to be at an evolutionary leaping point to that form of thinking. If that doesn't happen, nothing else will happen. It's in our individual but collective aspirations and inspiration is where things have to change. If we get that, all the technocratic stuff can be done, in my mind.
Um, yeah, great. First of all, I thought that was a really good uh, debate, um, good exchange of ideas. Um, we don't think you're all gobshites. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least we won't say it from the, the top table. Uh, um, and I would just argue that um, debate and a clash of ideas on the things that we disagree is not in opposition to joint work and joint participation in Extinction Rebellion or whatever. In fact, in my opinion, it's necessary that we have both, that we form campaigns, groups, organization, movements around the things that we do agree on, and within those have debates um, and ultimately make decisions about immediate stuff, but also about strategic things, what we're aiming to do. Um, and I think this debate that we have had, and in many, many different forms, is going to have to be had you know, right around the world. And repeatedly, it is the question facing humanity about how we're going to deal with this crisis that is coming. And I mean, in answer to the point you made, and, and maybe you're right, maybe we're not going to get rid of capitalism. But if we don't get rid of capitalism, we're done for. Like, that's just, it really is that simple. It is extremely difficult to imagine any way that the capitalist system is going to get us out of this crisis. All of the evidence, and we have to look at the evidence that's there in front of our eyes in terms of the role of the different groups of corporations and the role of governments that back up those corporations, is that it's going to get worse and worse and worse as we head towards one tipping point after another. And I mean, that's a, that's a harsh truth to be pointed out, but in my opinion, we have to deal with that reality. That isn't some like abstract ideological baggage that we're bringing to that debate. In my opinion, that's what the evidence very clearly um, points out. There you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, so to give a quote from uh, Ursula Le Guin, who people might know is a, was a science fiction uh, writer and a, and a socialist. And she said, she wrote, we live in capitalism and its power seems inescapable. So did the divine power of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by humans. And that's just important. And it goes back to the quote you're right about, the, the original argument of the quote, that, as that like the system can seem absolutely inescapable and the idea of organizing in a different way can seem crazy. But that, that existed under feudalism, that existed under slave society. Human society and how we organize it is changed by people. People with powerful ideas getting organized. Um, and that brings me to the, to the point that I, I disagree with Peter Action on what the big division in society is. Um, I think the big division in society is class. Um, and I think the benefit of seeing that the big division in society being class, and it actually being so, in my opinion, is that for the vast majority of people, the interests of society as a whole and their own personal interests are in, in tune. They're effectively one and the same thing. Like the vast majority of people in this country would like to see decent public transport, would like to see decent education, would like to see decent healthcare, would like to see decent wages, etc. Like the vast majority of people have broadly speaking same interests on every day-to-day -day issue or the vast majority of day-to-day -day issues. And the only ones who don't share those interests are those who were there at the very top. And that's where I disagree with Eamon at the idea that like we're all living in a democracy, ultimately we're all the same, we all have the same power, etc. etc. Because it's just we, we don't have the same power and we don't have the same responsibility for the problems that we face. You, no, nobody in this room has individually anything like the power of Larry Goodman and 
Do you know what I mean? The, the ability, the, the impact that Larry Goodman and Larry Goodman's policies have in terms of climate change in this country and his control of you know, massive agribusiness. He obviously recently came out, he also doesn't pay any tax, unsurprisingly. Probably most people in this room pay more tax than Larry Goodman, have one millionth of the impact in terms of climate change than Larry Goodman, and have a lot less power than, than Larry Goodman. So we, we don't live, in my opinion, in a, in a democracy. Or, or we have some democratic rights, but they're limited. Um, and the key reason why like, we don't live in a democracy is because we don't have economic democracy. Um, it's because the key decisions about what happens in our lives are not, they're not even made by people in Parliament. For all the limits of Parliament, and I agree with those points, they're made in, in boardrooms on the basis of profit. That's, that's the truth. You know, and, and it's why the, it, there's such a, a limited space for the individual choices for people to make, because they're all being made already by big corporations in the pursuit of uh, profit. And I think we need to be concrete. Like, you know, I'm happy to hear Eamon's optimism about the bill proposed by, by Reid Smith about leaving fossil fuels in the ground, but I think we need to deal with like, what, what happened there and draw some lessons from it. So Reid Smith has an excellent bill on behalf of People for Profit and Solidarity People for Profit to say that no future exploration licenses will be granted um, for fossil fuel, um, for, for oil and gas. Um, it's, it's an excellent bill, it's, it's very limited in its scope, in reality, because we already have enough identified oil and gas to destroy the world four times over. You know, we need to be leaving some of the stuff we already know about in the ground, never mind not going to explore for, for more. So it's very limited, but it points in the right direction. And what happened? I mean, it passed through the doll because Fianna Fáil was under pressure in opposition and they said, oh, we'll, we'll vote for it. And, and now the government has, has blocked it. And they've blocked it after lobbying by a former advisor to Enda Kenny on behalf of the fossil fuel industry, lobbying that wasn't registered by the government. Um, and they've blocked it in a completely undemocratic way because they can't vote it down. So they simply say it's going to cost loads of money or it's going to cost some money. And the money that they're talking about it costing is they say if it passed, we'd have to give back the application fees to the oil companies, which is like, relatively speaking, small amounts of money. And so it's, it's pretty blatant in black and white is that because it would because it would inconvenience the oil companies and cost the oil companies some, some money. Basically, it's in black and white. They're not going to go along with democratic processes. They're not going to go along with the fact that the majority of the doll voted for this. And, and I think that, that shows the limits of our democracy. Um, and obviously, Donald Trump, in a far more extreme way, or all the capitalist governments of the world show, fundamentally, fundamentally they don't operate in the interests of the broad majority in society. They operate in the interests of you know, the very, very tops. And those very, very tops are the same people, and they, they can be identified as individuals, but they're also obviously corporations who are responsible for the destruction of our uh, planet. And we will not persuade them to have different policies. We really won't. Um, and, and even if you're really optimistic, and maybe you thought that like a green wing of capitalism could emerge that would become influential within the capitalist class, you know, there's no way that there's a time for that to happen is that the, the urgency of this means that it's just capitalism is not going to deliver on, on solving this. Um, and I, I just think another thing in terms of, again, being concrete and real is that, and this is you know, said with respect and so on, and an agreement to continue to campaign together on things we agree on, is like the Green Party need to deal with the fact that like, what you're currently setting up to do, you did already, what, 10 years ago. And it, was, it did not help the environment. Like, it really didn't. You stood over bad anti-environmental practices 
um, including the brutalization of a community in, in Rossport. Um, and so you've been there, tried it, it didn't work, but you are prepared to go back and do it again. And in my opinion, unfortunately, the same thing is, is going to take place. And some various people have made the, the points about the Labour Party or whoever who have gone into government to manage capitalism alongside the big parties of capitalism. And the policies of capitalism rule, and that includes uh, environmental destruction as a, as a consequence. Um, just a couple of other quick points. Maybe, maybe just one final point. Um, just about how, how do we get to that change? So I, I think we need a revolution in society. We need a complete change in how our society is organised. Um, I think it's unavoidable that that means the key sources of wealth, key ways things are produced, is in public democratic ownership. That we have an economic democracy and that we get to make the decisions about what happens in our society as a, as a consequence. Um, how do we get to that and what's the relationship between the movements we're involved in today and the demands that we raise within those movements and that socialist, eco-socialist future that I think we, we need? Um, and I think there is a relationship in that right now the urgency is we have to mobilise people. I agree with the points about as many people as possible onto the streets, into strike movement, etc. We go for 20th of September, there's the week of action in October for the Extinction Rebellion, there'll be other activities um, after that. Um, we need to involve as many people as possible in building a really you know, genuine, organic mass movement. Um, I think in doing so, we can do two things. One, we can win some victories. Like, when the parliament does things right against the interests of the corporations who support and who the big establishment parties represent, it isn't because they have, you know, they wake up and feel good that day. It's because they're facing a mass movement. That's why they went against the interests of the capitalist class in terms of water charges, it's why they went against their own conservative interests in terms of abortion rights, it's because you had a mass movement. So mass movements can win important concessions even within the framework of capitalism, but we're not going to be able to enough, win enough within the framework of capitalism to stop this urgent crisis. And so in my opinion, there's two reasons to build those movements. One is to, is to win things now, but the second thing is to build our power, build our strength, build our consciousness, and build a movement that is actually ultimately able to overthrow this capitalist system. Um, and that in my opinion, is the like, unavoidable conclusion from looking at the science of climate change, from looking at the science of how capitalist politics operates and whose interests these people uh, represent, and from looking at uh, what's uh, necessary. So I just would strongly urge people to get involved if you're persuaded by that. If you're not persuaded by that, but you're persuaded by we need to have a movement on the environment, get involved in a movement against the environment, and let's continue uh, the debate and the discussion about what the alternative to the system is. Thanks very much. Thank you.